Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 204 of the National Security Law Podcast. We are brought to you, the one and only you, by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday afternoon. It's June 14th. It's 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, as the band Stain would say, it's been a while. <laughs> uh, we should have done this over with candlelight. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. Um, because we recorded, we recorded, we, we recorded like back-to-back days three weeks ago. So actually, even though it's only been two weeks since our last drop, it's actually been like two and a half weeks since we recorded. Yeah, this is is this our longest break? This is this is pushing it's it a little bit, and we're paying for it now because there are so many good things to talk about. But I I kind of we'll skip all the good stuff. You'll skip the good stuff and go straight to the frivolity. No, no, my friends, we have so much good stuff to talk about. We're going to go to Scotusland. Where we got uh, what have we got? A couple things. We have an, a ruling in Van Buren, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act case. We've got a cert grant. We the the, the term is shaping up. I guess. The October 21 term is shaping up to be a state Ooh. secrets in FISA Palooza. FISA Palooza? I mean, I mean, from our perspective, yeah. Other people might say, and you know, Roe versus Wade, affirmative action. You know, <laughs> it sounds like there's <laughs> going to be an amendment. Books. There's going to be some books written about this term, aren't there? Um, I, I think October term 2021 is going to be as it, yes, one for the books as opposed to this term, which is um, we'll talk a bit about how it's 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 in a very strange, interesting place at the moment. Definitely. All right. So uh, we'll, we'll run through Scotus land. And when we emerge, we will emerge into Aipa town Indeed. Uh, where we will discover that the administration has withdrawn the sanctions on TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> yes. or TikTok. No, more, no, no more sanctions on breathbeds. TikTok and we talk, uh, TikTok and WeChat to the rest of us. Uh, the sanctions, it, it's really pretty extraordinary. I mean, they, those companies, at least for now, seem to have rode out and, and defeated the attempt to sanction them. And yet they didn't really have not fully can't celebrate yet. So we'll talk about all of that when we get to it. And then we'll pivot from there. We'll head to Gitmo where uh, a fascinating NBC News story uh, dropped a, a, a delectable hint of a policy position that supposedly the administration has taken on the future of those who will remain in military custody, not, not military commission defendants, but those being held for the duration of hostilities. We'll talk about whether we think the story is even accurate, and if so, how, you know, legally speaking, what, what follows from this. Um, and then uh, we'll go revisit our old friends in Trumplandia. Mm. We've got the subpoena gate. We've got uh, Mike Flynn back in the news, and that'll be an occasion as well to talk about your Larrabee case. We, because, 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 man, did the internet have? I made no friends on the internet by suggesting that maybe there might be constitutional problems with court marshaling Michael Flynn. I feel, I feel <laughs> that's some red meat. I mean, that's that's chum in the water. Uh, I, I have a feeling, Steve, your interactions with the internet are basically like a barbell reaction. It's not a lot of a, uh, not a lot of just like I don't know. I follow it. It's interesting. I, so, so it's, I, you know, it's interesting. I think my. My Supreme Court coverage on Twitter, I think, actually is more sort of centered where when I'm doing more like just sort of interesting, useful, like reporting like coverage, um, more interest and less vitriol. But 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 the second I start actually expressing opinions, it's over. Well, this is this is one among many reasons why you have something like six times as many Twitter followers as I do. And you are six times as happy as I am. <laughs> I do think there's an inverse relationship. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that's so true. All right, what else? Uh, we'll do a little bit of lightning round. We've got to say something about the 
Operation Trojan Shield, um, a NOM smart, uh, or rather in hardened encryption device and app combination that FBI and Australian Federal Police and others teamed up on. And that probably will be enough. And then we'll get to frivolity. I think we're going to reflect, definitely reflect some on the early uh, results in Major League Baseball. And you mean the first place New York Mets? Can you believe it? This is great. We'll have so we're motivated. And they're so mediocre. And we've and we've both sat with our kids and watched uh, uh, Ryan the Last Dragon. I think you may have fallen asleep while you were doing it. So I'm not sure if you review your prepared. <laughs> my, my review of Ryan the Last Dragon is basically good. You know, uh, I got a I got a cat nap. <laughs> okay, so you'll provide that perspective, and I'll provide a counter, <laughs> counterpoint of being awake. All right. Without um, further ado, should we jump right into it? We should. It's 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 the beginning of clerkship hiring day, Bobby, in 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 the Ooh. law school land. Oh, hey, good luck to every Oscar student day. out there who's uh, putting their hat in the ring. Um, remember, you you need one. It's just like any other legal or, frankly, other employment situation. You need that one job you want, and be be glad if you get it. A lot of people don't get any opportunities, so be thankful for what you get, and uh, don't be dissuaded and discouraged by any uh, anyone's. Any ones of our judicial colleagues who are failing to recognize your unique and special potential, somebody will, and uh, you'll be a great clerk. Anything to add on the, because that was pretty worthless as advice goes. Steve, do you have anything concrete to add as advice? Um, just that if you're a law student thinking about clerking, if you're a law student going through this process right now, um, this week is not the be all end all of the rest of your life. If you get a great clerkship this week, great. If you don't, Plenty of people get great clerkships off plan. Um, plenty of people go on to amazing legal careers without necessarily having great clerkships. Like, I mean, you know, it's it's hard in the moment to sort of not think to yourself that like your life depends upon what happens, but your life does not depend upon what happens. I mean, That's right. And there's there's there are any number of judges these days who would like their clerks to have some seasoning. So there'll be some people who are students currently want a clerkship badly and don't lose that desire, but maybe can. Uh, get to where they want to go later on after they've been in practice for a little bit. Yep. Um, there's plenty to be said for that model. All right. Um, Steve, let's go to the highest court in the land. And uh, first off, we've got a ruling in the Van Buren case. This was the case involving the, uh, the, the Georgia uh, policeman who had as part of his job authorized access to a, a police database. Now I, I recognize, I think he was a sheriff's deputy, but either way, law enforcement officer had authorized access uh, for law enforcement purposes uh, to a particular database. And so this person allegedly was corrupt and was using that access to gain and then share with others information that certainly uh, the, the sheriff's department hadn't authorized him to use the database for. So uh, a, a really terrible example of, of abuse on that guy's part. No, one, no <laughs> one's arguing that. The interesting, and there's no question the wrongfulness of it, the, the question that was before the Supreme Court was, does this behavior properly fall within the scope of 18 U.S. Code Section 1030, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, in particular, because 1030 is actually a bunch of separate felony offenses all under that general heading, um, is it a violation of the part of the statute where the idea is it's not that you had no authorized access? That's the so-called unauthorized access scenario, uh, a true. Where you're, just, where, you're just, where you're just a total stranger to the network. Yeah, you're the outsider. You're the outsider of the organization that owns. That's the owner operator of the system, and you hack your way in. Um, 
or you one way or another get your way in. <laughs> this is a situation where you're in, but you do something that you is not within the scope of your authority. The, the, the statute, so it's a statutory interpretation case. And the question is, what does the phrase exceeds authorized access mean? More specifically, does it mean narrowly using presumably technical means when you have access, but then you get outside your technical box? You find some way, presumably through hacking or social engineering, you, you get outside your authorized zone, or is it broader than that? Like maybe you never went anywhere, never accessed a thing that you weren't authorized to access. But what you did with it was substantively outside the bounds of the policies of the organization, the, the terms of use of your employer in this case. And if you indulge that reading, there's an obvious slippery slope problem. And this, this has been widely recognized for a long time. Kind of the, the, the iconic earlier statement of the danger was from Judge Kaczynski in the Nassau case in the Ninth Circuit, which early on famously observed that, you know, if read for all it's worth, that broad reading, if, if not subject to some objectively uh, implementable limiting consideration, could result in people violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act when they're, you know, checking scores for their fantasy baseball team on a work computer during work hours if the company's policies say you're not supposed to be able to use the system that way, and, and a lot of other classic slippery slope type uh, extreme examples. Uh, long story short, Supreme Court went with the narrower ruling, um, and there's a little bit of nuance to it, and for this, everyone should just... Uh, get on Twitter, find Orrin Kerr, read Orrin Kerr. Not only is there nuance, there's 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 a, a lack of clarity. I mean, like like it's it's clear it's clear what they held. It's not clear how far the holding goes. In one pretty darn critical respect, yeah. uh, unpack. So um, the 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 majority, and it's a bit of a strange majority, right? It's Justice Barrett joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. Um, so the three, uh, the six young, I think it's the, is it the six? No, Breyer's old, but it's like, it's the, the three youngest of the Republican appointees. Um, right. It, it, it's, it's almost as if you know, the, the party of appointment doesn't determine the outcome of the case every time. That's crazy. Who are you, Jonathan Turley? Um, <laughs> yeah. well, let, let's not go there. Hey, Turley wrote this preposterous op-ed in the Hill earlier this week in which he says, see, see the court's not political. Because look, some of his decisions are not five four or six three, right? It's like that's not the point. Okay, um, so it's 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 Barrett, Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, and the critical thing that they don't leave that they that they leave unresolved is so if I'm a, a service provider, if I like Bobby, let's say I'm the UT, like I'm the person who imposes like cyber policies for UT, right? Um, do I have to impose technological restraints? Um, or is it enough to expressly forbid access to particular information by policy, right? That is to say, is enough to say, as part of your employment contract, you are expressly prohibited from accessing, let's say, the student information database, right, for any purpose other than the ones that are specifically authorized. And here are the specific authorizations. Or do they actually have to, like, put in some kind of, like, secondary passcode that, would that you know where where it's only if I hack or otherwise get into the secondary passcode without authorization that I'm violating the statute? The the majority opinion deliberately and expressly punts on this question, which is kind of the whole ball game. Well, it's a big part of the ball game, that's for sure. You know, I think there's a danger for a lot of uh, casual uh, 
those who are casually engaged in the topic might think, well, you, you've got to have you got to have the, the most broad possible interpretation in order to effectuate the legitimate authority of the owner of the system to set the boundaries of their authorization. But of course, that's only true if the only way to enforce it is through uh, felony liability and civil liability under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, as opposed to all the many, many other pathways to put teeth into the uh, preferences of the owner operator. Right. Like, and, like, employee, I mean, right. You can still be fired for violating your, the policies yeah, of the owner operator. Like, first of all, it doesn't have to go into court. You can be right. fired. Exactly. Employment sanctions. And insofar as you're engaging in, so the, the original Nassau case where uh, the guy was, he was at Corn Ferry, he was leaving to form his own competitor firm and was trying to milk the customer database and the, the contacts database on the way out. And then after he was out, you know, there, there are other concepts, including common law and state level tort concepts you can bring to bear on this. So anyways, um, just the main message is you don't have to have the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act apply in order to solve these problems. And, and probably we don't want to mix those apples and oranges, I think. Um, in any event, uh, what it does ensure is that we're not done with CFAA interpretive uh, litigation going forward. But this was the Supreme Court's first engagement with this incredibly important statute from the point of view of cybersecurity law. So it was exciting to see at least a little bit of the underbrush. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, so the, the court actually this morning sent back the high Q case um, to the Ninth Circuit, which, oh, which, I love that case. which is really, I think, uh, um, it is a candid concession on the court's part <laughs> that Van Buren doesn't actually decide the real question, right? Van Buren decides sort of a, a step of the question. And Bobby, you're right. It's an important step. But like everything now is to play for on whether the statute, whether whether a, a party who's already properly in the system, right, exceeds authorized access only if they defeat some technological constraint, right, like some machine code, or if they just do something they are specifically forbidden by contract, by policy, by oral command from doing, you know, I, I don't have a strong view on what the answer ought to be other than that clarity is really important here. You know, I'll just say for those who don't know the Haiku case, it's a really interesting case. Haiku was uh, trying to develop, uh, it, so it's about LinkedIn. And Haiku was not trying to directly compete with LinkedIn in the initial position, but rather trying to build a business model off of LinkedIn information. They were scraping public-facing information, same information you or I might be able to access, and then putting it to work uh, for their own purposes to build out a certain product, which by the way, LinkedIn then later on began building out a competitor product for seeing that there was value in how Q and maybe others like it were making use of this information. Um, so I think one of the uses, for example, was they would be able to tell you, let's say your Bank of America with loads of employees or some other big company like that, um, LinkedIn, if mined with enough aggressiveness, public-facing information might tip you off when some of your employees are fixing to go or trying to yeah. go. And so there was intelligence, uh, corporate intelligence to be gained that way. IQ. And so uh, the, the question was, uh, if, if LinkedIn sent them a cease and desist letter and said, you're not, you're not authorized to use our site this way, is it a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act violation that, that LinkedIn could sue over if they kept doing it? Um, and so far, I believe Haiku has been winning that case. And this contrasts with the Power Ventures and Facebook case, where with Power Ventures, um, they needed users to give them their Facebook 
Facebook login credentials to get beyond anything public facing, to get to the, uh, you know, within the walled garden of the Facebook world in order to extract the information that they were then using as an aggregator for using uh, a variety of social media systems. Anyways, um, so all of us who have this stuff in our, our syllabi, um, we're going to have a lot of churn. <laughs> yeah, you have some work to do. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, that's not the only thing the Supreme Court did lately. Uh, Steve, we've got a, a triptych of of secrecy and security type cases. We got two FISAs. We've got two state secrets. Uh, the latest one is Fizaga, which we we talked about at least twice on the show. We we did a quick. We've uh, been all over it. I just want to say we have like you know if you've been a devout a devout follower of this podcast, you were ready for the cert grant. Like you might remember episode one thirteen, which I, I know I do. Seven, what was it? Seven hundred two is to Madison as two fifteen is to Hamilton, or something like that. Some crazy some title. title that has been. I look at it now. I'm like, I don't get it. It must have made sense at the time. <laughs> uh, that's a, hey, that's a good episode title. Episode two hundred four. I don't get our old episode titles. <laughs> I like it. I'm writing it down. All right, tell the good people who are with us here today what's going on in Fazaga and how's this different to or similar to some of these other ones. So, so there are three. If you think about a Venn diagram, right? Fazaga is in the middle of um, three cases, two of which involve FISA and two of which involve the state secrets privilege. So the court has already granted a case called Hussein versus United States about Abu Zubaydah. Um, that's not a FISA case. That is a straight state secrets case about whether the state secrets, whether and to what extent the state secrets privilege bars um, efforts to enforce foreign discovery orders. Um, in U.S. courts. This is the effort by Abu Zubaydah to have uh, the contractors Mitchell and Jessen testify or at least provide evidence as part of ongoing legal proceedings in, I believe, Poland. Um, that's already been granted. That's going to be argued in the fall. Um, Fazaga is also a state secrets case, but it's one about the intersection between Bobby, the state secrets privilege and FISA. And the reason why that comes up is because FISA has an express civil remedy provision that isn't used very often because you don't usually know that you are right. subject to unlawful surveillance under FISA. But in the rare case where you do, does the civil, does the fact that Congress took the rare step of creating an express civil remedy provision actually suggest that Congress thereby meant to brush aside or at least displace the state secrets privilege as a bar to litigation, given that it's hard to contemplate how you could have FISA civil litigation without at least some state secrets being involved. So the Ninth Circuit, um, in an opinion by my judge, Judge Berzon, held that um, FISA, at least to a, to a large degree, displaces the state secrets privilege in cases where it applies, because otherwise there'd be no point. Um, the Supreme Court, uh, there was a, a, a multiple judge dissent from the denial of rehearing on Bonk, um, and the Supreme Court last Monday granted cert. Um, and we'll hear argument, I suspect, probably the same day as the Abu Zubaydah case, um, probably sort of November or December uh, of this fall. Steve, tell me your reaction to this. And, and I I said, third, which, I'll, which I'll get to when we're done. OK, so I haven't gone back to, to refresh my recollection of where all uh, things stand in Fazaga, let alone what I myself may have said in the past. But here, here's the question that I think it sort of looms as sort of just the big picture question. Um, so as you say, FISA contemplates civil liability uh, proceedings. And it would seem to stand a reason that if you were in a position to present that claim, you, you must be allowed to do it. it. It couldn't be that the state secrets privilege comes into play anyways and causes all those all those suits to automatically fail. Um, here, the plaintiffs, the three plaintiffs, I believe have a variety of 
other claims as well. That's right. That's right. And, and so one possibility is that the answer is, well, right, FISA itself overrides the state secrets privilege in civil cases arising under FISA, but not otherwise. Uh-huh. Yeah, that in that at least so, super, at the top level that has some appeal to me. So as that's a distinct possibility. Let me just say that if that's where the, so one of the key antecedents, Bobby, to the Ninth Circuit's holding in Fazaga, is the recognition that the Ninth Circuit had already reached in a prior case that the state secrets privilege is not constitutionally compelled, right? But is rather a common law privilege with constitutional undertones. And this goes back to a debate that indeed you and I had um, right. back in two thousand and seven. Um, Right where when because the Fourth Circuit in the El Masri case had I think somewhat controversially and indeed unnecessarily um, held that the state secrets privilege comes from Article Two, which would of course constrain the ability of Congress even if we are even if we thought Congress meant in the FISA civil remedy provision to override the state secrets privilege they might not be able to if it's granted in Article Two and so what you're suggesting I think would be a big deal even from the perspective of of sort of from my perspective, if the Supreme Court were to affirm that the state secrets privilege can, in appropriate cases, be abrogated by Congress, I think that would be a very significant holding, even if that actually doesn't help Fazaga for the most part with his other civil claims. I, I think that's right. But the, the one thing I disagree with is clearly that debate we had could not have been 2007 because, I mean, how old would that make us? No, we were like... 12 years old then. Listen, I, I, a, a little birdie has told me that someone has a very, very significant birthday coming up next week. <laughs> it is possible that I have a very round number birthday uh, <laughs> in, in short order. And so I will just say that I am really enjoying my my last little bits of my 40s. Of oh, seven squared? <laughs> seven, seven squared has been pretty great. Actually, seven squared has been a pretty tough year, what with COVID and all that. Oh, well, yes. Although I, you know, I, I've had it easy. Um, let's <laughs> say that, uh, yeah. So I'm turning fifty on the. We're, we're heading for, uh, half a half a hundo. <laughs> uh, I, I wish we had it on cue to play to get some Bon Jovi. Whoa, we're halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so all this to say, so Fazaga and Abu Zubeda, um, Bobby, I think it's safe to say are going to be the court's two most important state secrets cases. Since Reynolds. Absolutely. Right? I mean, they, they just haven't gone near it since in any I mean, means. There, there's, ten, there's Tenet versus Doe, but that was really a Totten case. Yeah, um, well, yeah, that gets back to the question. Is, uh, is, there, is there not a divergence for my but, views? Um, so, so just really quickly, while, 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 so there is a third FISA case kicking around, although it's, it's trailing these first two. Um, and the third case is a case called ACLU versus United States. This is the ACLU's effort to have the Supreme Court take up the question of whether the First Amendment right of public access to judicial proceedings applies at all, like at all, yeah. um, to the FISA court. Right. Um, and, and there's a sort of there's an antecedent procedural question because the FISA Court of Review said it didn't even have jurisdiction to decide that question. Um, but you know, it's an, it, normally I would not give a lot of credence to a petition like that in a case where the government won below. Yeah. Um, the, the only reason there's a massive and bipartisan coalition of folks who have supported. This petition, Ted Olson is the counsel of record on the petition. I mean, I, I, I think this is going to get more attention than we might otherwise think just from the caption and the and the question presented. So, you know, the cynic in me says that what will end up happening is in all of these cases, we will not get big, exciting, clear majority opinions that make new core national security law for us. Instead, the majority or the cobbled together majority will be, 
you know, some kind of preliminary issue and making the thing go away. And then we'll have these tantalizing uh, separate opinions that are not carrying the majority that'll get into the details. But you never know. We could be in for, you know, a new Reynolds here. I'll just say this. My my dog in this fight is if they're gonna if there's gonna be a 2022 ruling on the state secrets privilege, my dream is for someone in there to cite my Georgetown uh, George Washington Law Review article on the origins of the state secrets privilege. You've probably been cited by the Supreme Court, Steve, uh, several times. Once, uh, once. All right, you you got me one to know. So, friends, and especially Supreme Court clerks who are listening or justices. Uh, Help me even the score with Steve here by throwing me a bone with uh, the state secrets privilege article of choice being mine. Help me help you. Begging over. Uh, Well, here's a question. Do do briefs count as citations? uh, It's a a worthy category. It's just a different category. Fair enough. On scholarship, I've got one. I think I may have some briefs and they're probably some random amicus that probably I wrote or something. Um, all right. Uh, just really, really quickly, because I think folks might just be curious, um, more general Supreme Court updates. So the court handed down um, two more decisions today, which means it has 17 left to go in argued cases from this term. Um, it only has, Bobby, four, four or five more scheduled opinion days. I suspect they're going to add a couple. They should be done, I think, by July 1st. Um, and, you know, there's some big WAP. I mean, there, there aren't any major national security cases left, but there are some pretty big cases in there. There's some big uh, culture war cases. Yes. And Steve, when was it? Le- was it le- just last summer that it went so far beyond the norms into July when they? Yeah, but that was, I mean, so that was, I mean, you know, the court last year um, postponed 10 arguments. It, hurt, yeah, it had a, yeah. a full calendar in May. Yeah. So last summer, the court went into mid-July for the first time since the 1980s, I want to say. Um, no, since 1974. Um, but the, you know, I, I don't think we're heading there. Um, no, I'm sure like not. I, I don't think, even, and, and here's the interesting statistic. Um, so the court, Bobby, is on pace to hand down 55 decisions, double nickel, um, in, in argued cases. That's going to be the second lowest total yeah. since 1862. That, I got to say, I, it might be a little hard to articulate, real hard to articulate what the right minimum number is. Whatever it is, it's got to be more than 55 that you can't tell me that that's making most efficient and effective use out of this institution. There's got to be more issues than that that were worthy of this level of treatment. So, I mean, I think there are a couple of things that are going on. I mean, I think partly we have had a little bit of a shift in the composition of the court that always has an effect on the cert pool. Um, I, for one, think the court is spending a lot more time on the shadow docket, right? For better, like what, whether for better or for worse, I think is a matter of disagreement. But like, just there's no way that that's not having exacting at least some cost on their finite resources. That's a really good point. So you're saying the net effect, if you if you add in that the cumulative amount of substantive work they're doing, it's just moved from the visible traditional domain in part into the shadow domain. Which, which I think is a problem. And, you know, it's funny because one might think that someone with my politics would be perfectly happy if the court's merits docket reduced to zero, um, right? But in fact, <laughs> it's, actually, <laughs> it, it's actually the opposite. Like, I actually think that there are, there are reasons why I think it is actually bad normatively um, and unrelated to the politics of the moment for the court to be doing, to be handing down some of so few decisions. You are, you have a strong attachment to the, to the institutional interest. You're an institutionalist in this respect. And that's, uh, you know, very helpful just for those who are not used to thinking in these terms, just observe that Steve's got his, his views on the substance and, and the larger uh, normative elements of this, but also 
can at the same time have a separate view about the institutional interest and the former doesn't dictate the latter. What a concept. I appreciate that about you, Steve. I, 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 I appreciate that you appreciate that. All right. Anyway, um, so we'll probably have more to say about the Supreme Court nerdistry over the next couple of weeks because there's, even though, I mean, Van Buren's an example of a case that comes very, very close to our universe. Um, you know, I suspect there will be things that happen in some of the other cases that we will care about, even if they're not directly on point to our field. Sounds good. So we've got to step away from Scotus land now. And here we are in the outskirts of Aipa Town. Aipa! And uh, Aipa Town, well, there was a showdown here around these parts not that long ago. <laughs> I did I did like that. Da, 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 da. Uh, I, wish, I wish we'd planned for that. If we planned for anything, we could add in lots. Of- I know. We could have, this podcast could be so good if we actually worked at it. I know. Really, you know, appreciations to the occasional messages we do get where people say, hey, you know, Y'all could use a sound engineer. Like, you know, I, uh, totally. We, we were the first to agree, but we just I mean, We could use lots of things. But we don't want to try that hard. <laughs> so uh, that sounds bad, but it's just honest. Um, so the Biden administration issued a new executive order in the chain of orders that goes back to a 2019 Trump executive order that invoked the IEPA framework, and no longtime listener needs us to recap the IEPA framework, but newcomers might need the very quick and dirty version, and it works like this. Uh, Congress has pre-delegated to the president through the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or IEPA, and we do pronounce it that way. Others don't, but we do, because it's more fun that way. IEPA, it works like this. Step one, to activate the possibility of these presidentially imposed delegated sanctions, the president must first declare a national emergency on some international subject. And as we talked about a great deal in the early years of the Trump administration, there's not a lot of limitation on what the president might say is a national emergency. And uh, that doesn't mean anyone's sanctioned, though. That just means, all right, the power to the light switch is on, but the light switch hasn't been thrown yet. It's just got power now. It's then up to the president to either immediately act to invoke that power and start naming names and imposing sanctions. And these are sanctions in the nature of blocking of assets and other things in the international system, uh, targeting non-U.S. person, non-U.S. entities, and fixing it so that it's it's an offense under federal criminal law if a U.S. person violates the sanction by, for example, trading or exchanging assets with that sanctioned entity. Um, so the president can either act right away. The president can take no action at all. He can just say there's a national emergency. I'm setting up the sanction system. And we may or may not later name names as to who's getting sanctioned. So sort of a warning shot. And in international uh, relations, this is a fairly useful tool because it enables the president to ratchet up the heat like uh, President Obama did at one point with Chinese IP theft in through cyber espionage, where he set up a sanction system but didn't name names yet as a way of sending a credible, hopefully credible signal to the Chinese that we're really getting serious about this. Didn't exactly help as much as we would have liked. That's a whole different topic. Um, President Trump, when he invoked in in 2019 uh, the IEPA authority, he declared a national emergency relating to the influence of adversarial foreign powers over the information and communication supply chain and technology. Um, and the idea was that there are some things where you don't want adversarial foreign powers to be uh, in the supply chain for the U.S. for these technologies. And at some point, we might use sanctions to try to make sure that sticks. He directed the Secretary of Commerce to create a framework to impose sanctions, but left it 
delegated to them, which is a very common way of doing IEPA, delegated to one of the departments, usually Treasury or Commerce, uh, to impose sanctions. So then months go by, Commerce is sort of working away. They're promulgating some draft regulations for how this framework's going to work. Meanwhile, you hit summer 2020. Um, recall that the world was beginning to have some in-person events and Trump was going to have an in-person rally in Oklahoma. Uh, of all things, on TikTok, some, uh, I think it was a K-pop band got hold of the idea that there was a sign up for that event and they popularized the idea that, hey, even though you're not going to go because you're like somewhere else in the world, uh, sign up for this. Let's just like, let's let's basically DDoS their registration process. And one way or another, so that caused a, a huge commotion. And not that long afterwards, um, Trump imposed IEPA sanctions directly on the back of his earlier order, sanctioning TikTok. And the claim was sort of multifold. One, the claim that TikTok was a national security threat because the app can gather data on US persons, which might be useful for intelligence purposes in particular cases, or especially in the aggregate. Uh, two, there might be uh, censorship, Beijing-friendly censorship. And there was, there was a little bit of track record of, of some smoke in that direction. Uh, the company said they were a new company, they haven't figured out how to do things yet, but one wondered. And then there was even a hint of concern about disinformation affirmatively being pushed into TikTok. Um, and at the same time, they also sanctioned WeChat, uh, more or less on similar grounds. Uh, and then a third thing happened, which was that the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States, CFIUS, which had long been retroactively reviewing the acquisition of what became TikTok by ByteDance, the Chinese company, they ordered divestment. So... This unleashed a ton of litigation, and the government actually did really poorly in the preliminary stages of several of these lawsuits. Uh, statutory problems in light of the fact that IEPA has a statutory exception for informational materials, and lawyers uh, for the companies were able to argue effectively in at least one court that maybe these platforms were themselves sort of within the scope of that, that exception. And then a, a First Amendment argument that as I talked about in the show previously, I did not find persuasive at all, but but a, a judge did, and it was on appeal in the Ninth Circuit. But then time runs out in the Trump administration, Biden comes in, and people have wondered what is going to happen. And so now we know. The executive order from last week withdraws the sanctions specifically against TikTok and WeChat, for now at least. But it begins by saying that the threat identified in the original Trump administration generic order setting up the possibility of sanctions in general in this area, it says the concerns there were real, it's reaffirmed, there's even a further sort of elaboration and exploration of why this matters for US national security. And then there's a directive basically to the Commerce Department in consultation with others to think really hard about what all needs to happen in this area and to set up a more rigorous process and the ellipses that they didn't write in, but is sort of implied there is more rigorous than happened with TikTok and WeChat to assess who in particular ought to be sanctioned. And, and so that's it. It is possible that when the clock runs out on those reassessments, you could have TikTok or WeChat re-subjected to sanctions. Um, don't know that that'll happen, but it could. Others eventually probably will be subjected to sanctions under this framework. It's definitely not gone away. And for TikTok, they're still subject to the entirely separate, entirely freestanding CFIUS divestment order. 
And so there's some kind of negotiation probably going on there. We don't know what's going to happen yet. That's the story, Steve, of TikTok and WeChat for now. Um, that was awesome. You should have done a TikTok for it. I, so I threatened to do this and I consulted my experts, which are two of my daughters are teenagers who know their way around the app. Um, and let's just say that their considered opinion was the world is probably better without me trying to do a TikTok-y uh, substantive recap. And you know, they're probably- I know. So, so Katie Lee Barlow is doing them for SCOTUS blog and Leah Littman's doing them for Strict Scrutiny. And I have to say, you know, that I, I enjoy them. Well, you know, could NSL podcast eventually move into the TikTok realm? Maybe we should start experimenting. Maybe the fact that our that my daughter's currently and eventually your daughter's too, we're uh, <laughs> horrified by this. You know, which way does that cut? Um, yes, awesome. that's how that cuts exactly. Hey, can we can we pivot now to Gitmo? Must we? Yeah, we got to because there was this. Sort of crazy game, right? Yeah. NBC News had a story that was basically about something we've talked about at length in recent weeks on the show, which is what's the Biden administration's plan going to be for Gitmo closure? And you and I have agreed from the beginning that it's not going to be some frontal assault. It's going to be an erosion attrition strategy that looks for some progress in some military commission cases, some periodic review board. And maybe one way or the other, they kind of, you know, take it all apart piece by piece. And then eventually, maybe for the uh, subset of military commission cases that are still there and for the very small number of not prosecutable, but we're not going to let them go. We're going to hold them under continuing claims of there being an armed conflict and continuing claims that they'll be held as enemy combatants for the duration of hostilities. Some number of these folks would remain in military custody. Um and I think you and I both, I don't know if we even talked about it, I think we both assumed that if that were to happen, if the administration had its way, they'd be onshore to the brig at some military facility somewhere. Um, not to a not to a prison, on in a civilian prison, but this NBC News story said that it claimed that the Biden administration's policy on this issue would be that whatever else happens, they wouldn't be brought to a military base, that they'd be taken to a supermax like Florence, Colorado. And Steve, what do you think? I'm I'm really suspicious that maybe this represents uh, a miscommunication. Surely that's not actually the policy position, putting law of war detainees into a civilian prison facility. Yeah, I... I, I really don't know what to make of this NBC story. Like, I can't tell how well-sourced it is. And I can't, like, um, Secretary Blinken had said something at a press conference about trying to identify an envoy, right, to sort of take the lead on on Gitmo closure issues. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> party like it's 2009. Um, it has a familiar ring to it. The, I mean, listen, the the... The problem I have with this story is that it's either incredibly naive or incredibly underinformed because, you know, you can't move the detainees anywhere on U.S. soil without a statute, um, given the given the continuing prevalence of the annual transfer restrictions. Right. In the end. Now, now, maybe the administration somehow thinks that those restrictions are going to disappear from this year's NDAA, I have a hard time believing that. Like, I have a hard time believing that, you know, in a 50-50 Senate, the Democrats are going to expend capital on something that they've actually supported, or at least a number of them have supported for most of the last decade. Um, And so I think, you know, to me, the real sort of move here is transfer abroad. Like, that's, 
that's how you close Gitmo. And, you know, my sense is that the administration is working on it, but it's really hard. So I, I completely agree that none of this is, you know, it's all talk unless they can actually onshore somebody with statutory permission, which they do not currently have. I certainly don't think the administration is going to do what a few uh, folks during the, the, the Obama administration had argued for a commander in chief override argument that the, that the president can just override those statutory constraints. I always found that, you know, totally entertaining to see that sort of like extremely sort of, uh, shall we say 2002 style uh, <laughs> argument coming out of any Biden administration officials mouths. But um, so I don't think that's going to happen. And, and very hard to see what the political pathway is that leads to that statutory change. If it does happen, I'm trying to get my mind around the idea that, well, facility-wise, as a matter of, of the law of armed conflict, are you are you causing a problem? The idea is not, I'm sure they would say, we're not going to like put him in general population or whatever right. the supermax equivalent, you know, regular supermax status. I, I assume the idea is we're going to sort of administratively redesignate a, a component, a physical chunk of the facility to be the non-BOP, non-civilian custody you know, uh, BOP supplies it to the military for non-criminal detention purposes, but they just want it to be on civilian ground so they don't get accused of having onshore Gitmo so that Florence, Colorado doesn't become the new Gitmo too, as, as many will, will certainly say. Uh, a, does that argument work? Uh, maybe, I guess. Uh, B, is it worth the candle? Why don't you just use Fort Leavenworth? Is it really going to score you so many points that you'll you'll somehow be able to persuade people that it's not still military detention for the duration of hostilities in a context where critics by and large don't accept that hostilities are, can we say, durating, are, are enduring, are continuing. Um, do, you, do you think it's a problem, Steve, to, to potentially go that path? I just, I don't, it's, it's a stopgap, right? And so like 12 years ago, I would have understood it, but I just like, at this point, closing, we've had this conversation before about how so many people use closing Guantanamo to mean different things, right? About whether it's about actually just the, the, the symbolic step of moving the detainees elsewhere, or whether it's about actually like moving away from the substantive policy. And I just think that the moving detainees elsewhere um, move at this point um, is going to appease nobody, um, right? It's uh, that the, you know, the sort of the, the detainee um, bar sort of human rights groups are going to think that that's not even a half measure at this point, um, right? That it's going to still, you know, Republicans will still cry foul if you try to move them on the U.S. soil. So I just think that, you know. Um, well, will, will Biden get credit? Will he be able with a straight face to stand there and say, at long last, 20 year anniversary or 21 year anniversary of 9-11, I've closed Guantanamo, that chapter's behind us. Can he say that? If there are one or more detainees held under color of law of armed conflict authority under the AOMF and the NDAA, somewhere in the U.S., I think the answer is. I, I think the answer is he will say it, and yeah. people like me will criticize him for it because you know I think I think it is it is two things can be true. Guantanamo itself could have been a problem insofar as its you know remoteness and sort of black holeness right, gave rise to, facilitated, right, some of the abuses we've come to learn about. But the that, that doesn't mean that the policy is fine as long as you move it elsewhere. And so I just, you know, I, I think this is why the NBC story struck me as remarkably superficial, because there have been incredibly sophisticated conversations about how to solve this, how, how to cut this Gordian knot, you know, for really back into the late part of the Bush administration, I mean, back when, you know, 
John Bellinger and folks like that were in the room. And, you know, it's, it is such a, there's no one solution. There is no one size fits all. There's so much um, importance in this conversation for diplomatic um, efforts, right, about which we know very little. And so I just, you know, I understand the pressure to look like you're doing something, but like, you know, throwing out there, we're going to move them all to Florence is not doing something. It's just stirring the hornet's nest for no reason. When you wonder how uh, how much that really reflects considered policy as opposed to just whoever the one official was talking to the reporter was thinking, well, here's well, what I, I mean, it, Right. And it's entirely possible that DOD, DOJ, and the White House will have three different views on this. I mean, Absolutely. you know, the, I mean, the reality is that like, you know, at, you have to, you have to, at, at the very least, you have to, you have to separately deal with, you know, the military commission side of it, right. And the, the law of war detainee side, but that's anyway, I was, I was, troubled by the story, not because of what it portended, but because of the lack of depth that it suggested that at least some folks in the administration are approaching the issue with. I think that's that's fair. Now, if if it's if it's not really closing Gitmo, if you're still using military detention, we just moved it to a different location. Is it really leaving Afghanistan if you're still conducting airstrikes from over the right. horizon, that's our next right. topic. Um, the ongoing story of the of the supposed final withdrawal from Afghanistan has been accompanied by a recurring set of storylines relating to whether and how we will continue to do what is apparently it's in the contract. You have to always say over the horizon airstrikes, um, usually framed as we'll do this to support an exigency, uh, Afghan National Army or other Afghan government forces. And or uh, where there's a sufficient need from a just a straight up counterterrorism pers- uh, perspective to use lethal force. And this raises an interesting question for the insiders. Uh, for many years, as we've talked about often on the show, the rule under the uh, Obama administration in the latter years, and then a modified version of this still under the Trump administration, and now a sort of a back to the Obama model under the Biden administration was that if you're using lethal force for counterterrorism purposes outside a zone of active hostilities, it's not that you can't do it. Lord knows they still do it, have been doing it, or at least until recently have been doing it. Um, but you do it subject to the presidential policy guidance, the PPG, which has certain constraints about what levels of certainty you have to have about no civilian casualties, um, who has to authorize it, that sort of thing. Extra, extra constraints beyond what might be the combat zone set of rules of engagement. Um, post-withdrawal, Steve, uh, isn't Afghanistan at that point not a zone of active hostilities as far as the U.S. is concerned? And therefore, does it slip into, for the first time in all these all these years, does it fall into the realm of the PPG subject I mean, to those rules? I, I can't see why the, I can't see how the answer is no. Right. Unless there's just like a separate set of special, the Afghanistan rules, which is its right, own. The, right. The, the, but, but of course, then, I mean, that runs into the diff. I mean, insofar as the PPG is an effort by the, was at least initially an effort by the Obama administration to harmonize targeting principles to what it understood the IHL rules to be, right? How could Afghanistan be sort of this novel gray zone? Like that's, you know, that seems underexplained to me. Yep. Well, we're going to see more on this. We really just wanted to talk about that to flag the issue. All this talk about over the horizon air power, super important topic in its own right. But just note, there's a looming question. Is that is that now PPG? Is that not PPG? I suspect there's somebody, some group of somebody's having weekly meetings that are trying to iron this out. Uh, at least if they're not, if they're not doing that already, they need to start. Um, 
Speaking of everything old being new again, Steve, let's journey to Trumplandia where, uh, well, where do we dive in with the subpoena story? Do you want to, do you want to give us a quick rundown of the, the various, this is approaching seven layer dip status at this point. And I have to say that I'm not as conversant in it as I was with the, with Nishiri. Um, here's my basic read of the, of the, of the, of the land. Um, so as I think does not, as does not surprise me at all, things are starting to leak out of the justice department, um, about what the Trump administration did in various respects. And that includes, um, a series of what are described in the news as subpoenas. Although as Oren Kerr has pointed out, it's entirely possible that they're actually 2703 D D orders. Yeah. Under the Stored Communications Act, which allows, which actually allows the government to obtain even more information. It's like um, met- metadata on the communications, not the content, but the metadata. Right. So the first, ver- the first one that leaked was that they had they had um, uh, gone after the communications of Barbara Starr, um, who is the C- who is CNN's fantastic pen- uh, chief Pentagon correspondent. But then it turns out that they've also gone after the communications of a number of New York Times reporters. Um, and then it comes out that they've also gone to the communications of multiple members of Congress and their staffers. Um, and this Bobby raises, I mean, just a bevy of pretty serious um, both policy questions and separation of powers questions, um, where the sort of going after reporters, we've talked in the past about how, you know, at least in my view, the Obama administration crossed a pretty problematic line. Um, when it started identifying reporters as targets of investigations in the Espionage Act context, um, even though they never brought any charges, right, that they were sort of investigative targets. Um, this seems to go one pretty important step further, which is directly collecting reporters' records as part of Bobby leak investigations, right, where apparently the goal is to figure out who was leaking. Um, I think the story yesterday was one of the people DOJ had targeted as one of the leakers was Don McGahn, the White House counsel. Yeah, and, and, and family members for him and also for Adam Schiff. And, and, yep. and so I, I, I sort of, so I think there, there are to me two very different sets of problems here. Um, on the reporter side, right, there are supposed to be guidelines in place that limit the circumstances in which any prosecutor can issue coercive record, coercive process to journalists um, to, you know, for records relating to what you and I would define as news gathering, right? That is to say, in this example, like where, where the where the journalists are not themselves suspects in a criminal investigation, right? But where where you're using their records to try to identify a leaker. Yeah, you're trying to swim upstream investigatively to find out who the non-journalist leaker was. As opposed to sort of inculpating the journalists themselves. Um, and what's interesting is, even though there's supposed to be a policy in place that any such request has to be approved at the highest level, um, there have now been public denials by Attorney General Sessions, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein, uh, Rosenstein, and Attorney General Barr that they had any knowledge of this, which leads me to wonder, well, how could they not have had knowledge of this, but the regulations requiring high-level approval been complied with? Like, one of those two things doesn't seem to be possibly Either the regs were violated, the regulations were violated, or else they knew gap in communication here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a euphemism. Real quick, real quick. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're in agreement on this, but I want to surface it in case we're not. Are we in agreement that in principle, it's, it's not the case that there's no legal way ever to subpoena records from reporters in this context? 
that they're not absolutely immune from this. I do not believe reporters have absolute immunity. I do believe that there are very good normative reasons and in the extreme First Amendment freedom in the press reasons um, for um, the uh, for basically narrow tailoring requirements yeah. in the space, right? So for, in the abstract, we totally agree on that. That this is this is a very special sensitive. That there are First Amendment overtones to it, which is a little bit of a cop out, saying like, "Well, I'm not quite sure how doctrinally you catch that out," but yeah. but it, it's related, and uh, and it does seem like here there's regulations that are meant to reflect exactly that analysis. Yep. And it does not appear they were complied with. Yep. At least right now, the, that yep. may change. And, and, and that that has really ominous press freedom implications, um, right? And, and accountability implications insofar as now you are chilling, right? Future leakers, which of course is the goal. Um, well, so it kind of depends on what happens now, right? Because if what happens is if this, if the facts are unwound and we find out what's going on and the regulations were violated, and if there if and there's a big if, if there's some real accountability for that, if that's what happened, then the story could become one of deterring the misuse and circumvention of the regulations, protecting uh, those source journalist type relationships. So it could turn out to be that kind of story over time. Right now, it may turn out otherwise, and it may be, nope, this happened and no one really got in trouble for it. And that might chill people from talking to reporters. Yeah, I mean, I guess even if nothing comes of it, I'm still nervous at the precedent. Like, because each each step is an iteration, right? The Obama administration sort of diluting, right, the circumstances in which reporters could be targeted, I think was an important predicate to how we got to this point. Um, But also just as part of the larger, like, Trump administration assault on, you know, press freedom. I mean, ugh. Uh, okay, but to me that pales in comparison um, to the shift subpoena, um, right? Which to me is a direct affront to the separation of powers and perhaps even a violation of the speech or debate clause. So, was it? What do we know about the origins of it? Was it? A I grand said perhaps. Yeah. I said perhaps. Yeah, right. So, it, do we know? Is it a grand jury subpoena? Is it some other type of subpoena? I don't. I so, I have not seen. There may be reporting out there that has more detail than what I've seen to this point. I have not seen that kind of specific detail. But I will just say that it is ironic that at the exact same time as the Trump administration was arguing to the U.S. Supreme Court in the Mazars case that the separation of powers precludes Congress from issuing subpoenas for personal financial records of the president, the administration was actively <laughs> pursuing subpoenas against members of Congress. So, the, yeah, no no shock there, I suppose. But you're right to point out that comparison. Let me come back to that same question I had a moment ago about the journalist. Is, as a matter of separation of powers, should there be, I guess the normative and the descriptive are two different questions. So let me ask you to respond to each of those separately. Uh, descriptively, is it clear that there is an absolute immunity from de-orders, subpoenas, et cetera, for members of Congress in this sort of setting? And if not, is it something that you think should be the case? Or is this a little bit like the journalism scenario where it's not that you can't do it, it's that we need really robust procedural safeguards and transparency and oversight, and there's reason to think that none of that happened here? So I think it's somewhere in the middle. And I think that's because of the murkiness of the case law surrounding the speech or debate clause. So the speech or debate clause of Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1, um, says that um, members of Congress shall in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, 
be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses, and in going to and from the same and for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. So if you read the clause hyper-narrowly, right, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a subpoena to a member of Congress, right, or a subpoena for a member of Congress's records. Um, the courts have not, Bobby, historically read the clause hyper-narrowly. The courts have read the clause a bit more capaciously, um, informed by some of the separation of powers concerns that the Trump administration invoked in the other direction, right, for the proposition that all things being equal, right, members of Congress generally should not be subject to coercive investigations absent pretty compelling evidence that they have committed felonies. And, you know, I understand that it's part of the um, uh, uh, optical gestalt of the Trump universe that Adam Schiff committed treason. But let's not delude ourselves into thinking that there was any kind of plausible legal case for that. So there's two different variables that that could be oscillated between narrow and broad as we interpret the impact of speech and debate clause on this scenario. One is, what do we mean by speech and debate? Is this, is this limited to uh, literally speech and debate? Because members of Congress obviously do vastly more than that. And whatever whatever may have gone on here may well be beyond that scope if you did it super narrowly. And I definitely agree that there's been a broader interpretation. It's been treated more like a, a sort of an archaic shorthand for a broader set of congressional, proper legitimate congressional roles that are more broadly protected. Um, but of course, a leak, I guess, wouldn't necessarily be within the scope of that. So that, that's one interpretive question. But then there's a whole different question about broadness versus narrowness. It, it clearly prohibits arrest. And, and by extension, I would think it prohibits prosecution, obviously. Um, how much of a spillover into investigation? Right. And, and I think that there's not a lot of law there, right? I mean, so so to be clear, I mean, to, to answer your original question, I do not think the speech or debate clause can plausibly be argued to provide any kind of categorical immunity from subpoenas. Um, I do think, however, um, that there's a reason why subpoenas to subpoenas directed to members of Congress are exceedingly rare. Um and, you know, the sort of the, the chutzpah of the prior administration to be pursuing all this at the same time as it was arguing with the straight face to the Supreme Court that the separation of powers categorically precluded, right, subpoenas for the president's personal financial records. I mean, it just underscores how asymmetrical the separation of powers analysis has become, where, you know, the sort of, I, I would think that in both directions, right, the answer should be, um, you know, not, not not normal, but not prohibited. And yet, you know, we've gone to two extremes. So, you know, the Don McGahn scenario is a little different there since it's not a cross-branch scenario. This is an intra-branch right. scenario where- We're just trying to snuff out a leaker from within. Well, and and, and frankly, uh, it strikes me as, as, as crazy as it sounds, it strikes me as actually not nearly the, the challenging fact patterns the others because- First of all, he would have signed and would have been party to agreements in exchange for his access to classified information that would have authorized all sorts of collection and investigation in the event of suspicion. I don't know if the same thing's true for a member of Congress, although I suspect it might be. Some some listeners will know whether that's true as well. So there is this sort of, this is a recurring situation in leak investigations and in scenarios like this with people who have had classified information uh, that there's almost like a contractual overlay that complicates what would be the analysis if we're talking about some outside party, like the journalist, where you know no none of those uh, journalists have signed away their uh, otherwise potentially available privacy objections. Yep. So I think the McGann thing, in some ways, is by is the least interesting of these. I, I, so it's it's the least interesting legally and perhaps the most revealing politically, 
right? Which is which is just like you know, um, they were suspicious of everybody, yeah. and 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 what it tells me, Bobby, is that this is the tip of the iceberg, um, and that there's a heck of a lot more we're going to learn about what the Trump DOJ was up to um, during this time period. Uh, the the histories have definitely not yet been written. Uh, should we pivot in the interest of time to uh, lightning round? Mike Mike Flynn's back. What, oh yeah, that that what, guy. What now? Uh, oh, other than suggesting that a, a Myanmar style coup <laughs> in the United States would be a good yeah. idea. You, you can't. His uh, he needs to get new writers. Um, so my my favorite part about this is he said this on video. Right, the video is everywhere, and then he spent the next few days denying that he said it. And like his crazy supporters on the internet are like, he didn't say that. You you biased media. It's like there's a video. Like we you know watch the video. He says it should happen here. Like I mean, no, it's you know. it was it was really something to watch. So so this provoked the you know um, um, semi annual calls for Michael Flynn to be court martialed um, for any number of offenses, including in this case sedition. Um, and, and this finally sort of this combined with, um, the fact that we filed our merits brief in Larrabee in the DC circuit impelled me to write a short piece for, um, the MSNBC daily, which is this cool new, like, uh, um, bunch of sort of columnists by regular recurring columnists, um, about why Flynn's case to me underscores exactly why Larrabee is a big deal, right? Like, you know, the reason why people look. People like, you know, Colonel Yevgeny Vindman, right? Alex Vindman's brother, right? I mean, the reason why very prominent folks, um, former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich, right, um, are arguing for Flynn to be court-martialed is at least in part because in the court-martial, he'd have fewer First Amendment protections, right? In the court-martial, the fact that he said something hideously offensive um, would actually perhaps leave him liable as opposed to in a civilian court where I think no one would argue that his yes, it should happen here um, is you know constitutionally prosecutable speech. Clearly, under Brandenburg, that's not. Yeah. He's he right. is, however horrible it was from to say it, he's clearly entitled. Right, to but it. in courts martial, I mean, ever since Parker versus Levy in 1974, the Supreme Court has been pretty clear that the government's allowed to prosecute speech in the in the military that is not allowed to prosecute in civilian courts. Right, and so I mean, in Brandenburg, uh, sorry, in Parker, it was a doc, it was a, an army doctor who was telling people that Vietnam you know, that more black soldiers died in Vietnam, that it was a racist war. Like, I mean, things that like were controversial, Bobby, but no one would mistake for incitement. Right. Um, right. right. And so this is, this is right. So, all right. So how is this going to affect Larrabee? Uh, it's a good question. So, I mean, the, you know, I, I think it's, there are those who view the Flynn case as exactly why it's important for the military to retain the power to court-martial retirees. And to me, it's exactly the other way around, right? Which is, you know, that exact bloodlust, right? That exact emotion is why it's important to go the other way. Is this going to affect the courts at all? I don't know. Um, but we filed, you know, since we last recorded, we filed our opening, our, our we're on the bottom because we won in the district court. So we filed our merits brief in the D.C. Circuit um, in Larrabee on May 26th. The government's reply is due June 26th. And now I assume the case will be set for argument, you know, probably sometime this fall. So I, I don't know if Flynn's going to affect it at all, but I do think it it drives home to me the stakes, right? That we're not just talking about, th- you know, two or three random Marines no one's ever heard of, right? We're talking about actually a pretty serious issue that affects high-level retired officers as well as low-level retired enlisted personnel. Definitely. Well, um, that 
so, continues to loom. I just really never saw coming the the Mike Flynn entry into the story. Right, uh, but <laughs> it, it, it's it's a lot of defense. Yeah. Mike Flynn, film at eleven. Yeah, no, it's always you know the last as an interesting bookend kind of counterpoint. Recall that during the Trump administration, Admiral McRaven, our, our yep. colleague here at UT, yep. had had some. He had many wonderful uh, op eds during those years. But at one point, there was some really ugly commentary when he was saying things critical of Trump. And there were people out there that were sort of sniping from the peanut gallery saying something about like, hey, he can't he can't do that. He should be recalled and court martialed. And I mentioned that here, obviously not out of any sympathy with that view. I think it's outrageous. Uh, but to point out that you can't look at this issue through the lens of what does it mean for the particular person you're imagining might be the one subjected to recall? You can't think of it that way. You don't get to decide who's going to get subjected to recall in the future. You have to think about it in the abstract. And you should probably think about it from the point of view of who's the person I'm most afraid might ever be commander in chief in the future. And then imagine that they've had time to install all the right people in all the right places. And then imagine this tool is available for them. Yep. And that's the way you're supposed to think about all these things. Well, so, 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 it's, I mean, so it's interesting because we wrote, I, I would encourage folks who are interested to, to read our brief. And I, I, I posted it to Twitter. It's pretty easy to find. But one of the things that struck me, Bobby, about the government's opening brief, and we, we sort of make this point like on page one of our response, is the government's opening brief is a very sort of technical um, recitation of sort of what the Fleet Marine Corps Reserve is, right? And sort of, you know, the relevant sort of a particularly thin slice of the relevant history and precedents, right? And we sort of step back in our brief and say, wait a second, like there are some first principles here. Um, and one of the first principles is that military jurisdiction is supposed to be the exception in this country, not the norm, right? right. That, 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 you right. know, all things being equal, right? No matter who the defendant is, right? The burden supposed to be on the government to defend why it needs to subject these folks to court martial as opposed to civilian trials and or administrative discipline, as opposed to on the defendant to explain why somehow this is a problem. And, you know, I think that's, that's gotten lost not just in the Flynn story, but in a lot of our conversations about civil-military relations over the last 15, 20 years, which is, yes, the military today is a much, much more disciplined, much, much more you know, diverse, much, much more reflective um, institution in American society. It's still the military. Like it's still it's still separate. It's it's still over, you know, not over there physically, but over there legally. And that's that's pretty important. You know, and one of the line, by the way. What's that? That's a great line, by the way. Not over there physically, but yeah. Well, I mean, no, no, because one of the ways where one of the places where this comes up, I mean, we had a, a listener email us about this question. You know, so the Supreme Court um, has had a couple cases in the last two years about whether the Sixth Amendment requires unanimous uh, uh, verdicts, right, in criminal cases and unanimous convictions. And in in Ramos last year, the court had said, um, not only does the Sixth Amendment require unanimous verdicts, but the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment right, incorporates that rule against the states. Um, and, you know, the a big part of the sort of the Supreme Court decision in Ramos was that unanimous verdicts are just a core part of due process, a core function of fair trials. Well, the one place that's left in this country where there are not unanimous verdicts is the court martial system. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, I, I suspect that it will not be long before military appellate courts are you know grappling with the question of whether Ramos applies in the military, which to me just brings everything full circle because it underscores how still today, right, courts martial are 
um, courts that try offenses that could never be tried in civilian court using procedures that would not fly in civilian court. And that may be enough for active duty personnel, but we shouldn't just sort of blithely say it's enough for anybody we point our fingers at. Fair enough. Good, good closing argument right there. <laughs> Thank you, Judge Chesney. <laughs> okay. There's some words you never want to hear. Oh, boy. To the um, contrary. So, uh, actually, you know, I, I find the idea, I, I, this will be held against me if I ever become a nominee, but I really don't think I want to be a judge. I don't think I would enjoy that. Um, you know, there's I, a judge in San Antonio named Judge you. you know, there's a judge in San Antonio named Judge Chesney. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, she uh, also, did you know, she sometimes teaches for us here. I do. I yeah. do. Um, we do need more Chesney judges, just not me. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, I guess Riley's next then. <laughs> there you go. There's the next generation. Okay. Um, um, yeah. we, we should just note in passing, because we said we would, it, there was an extraordinary story that most people have heard about, about by now involving Operation Trojan Shield. <laughs> Previously on this show, there is a connection. We talked about the Phantom Secure prosecution. And it turns out that in the organized crime uh, global scene, there's quite the market for uh, what the criminal user trust is a extra safe, extra encrypted, extra immune from criminal process device and or app, usually the two in combination. Phantom Secure was a device and app combination marketed in particular to uh, the cartels here in North America. Um, and when that bust happened and that that uh, individual who ran that was taken down part of what became um, part of what became clear was that there's a key element in the ecosystem for getting these devices out there a distribution network you got to have somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who can vouch for you in order to distribute these things I mean you can't just set up a shop where people walk in to buy them and it turns out it looks like in the aftermath of that particular bust, Someone who was a key distribution node in that network uh, told the FBI, no doubt in the context of negotiations for what his fate was going to be, um, that he'd been working on sort of a next generation app and device. And someone, either that person or the FBI, had the idea that, well, you know, maybe part of the deal for you is you're not going to go to jail because you're going to help us get that device out there. And, and on the back end of all those messages as a BCC will be the government. And we're gonna we're gonna get this out there into the hands of criminals all over the place. Now, if you want to do that in the United States, that's gonna get tricky because you're talking about potentially massive Fourth Amendment particularity problems. I think, um, and so perhaps for that reason, it comes to be we are told that perhaps over beers with Australian colleagues, this idea of working out a deal where we're gonna make this capacity and this this tool available, but it's going to get distributed in Australia and start there and kind of begin to disseminate through the global criminal underworld, mainly there. Um, somehow or other, that idea gets hatched. Somehow or other, it goes forward. And apparently it was just phenomenally successful, you know, just at scores upon scores, hundreds upon hundreds of arrests at this point. Who knows how many lives saved? Uh, who knows how much disruption to a variety of criminal networks? Um, the important thing from a national security law show in the U.S. perspective is that it appears that at every stage along the way, the technology was set up in a way to where if the phone was in use in the United States, they were trying to prevent any of the information ever from, from being given 
back to U.S. authorities. So it seems like whatever fascinating legal issues might be arising under Australian or other third country laws where this stuff might be used, it doesn't appear to present an issue that we're going to hear about legally in the United States, although time will tell. Maybe something will come up. All right, uh, Steve, this has been a long substantive show, but we've got to talk about baseball because we've hit that point in the season when people have enough games under their belt, enough at-bats under their belt to look at the season and make some early comments on who's surprising us in both directions. So those who don't want to hear about the sports ball, thanks for listening. See you later. But those who are game to stick around for a few minutes more, it's time for Vivaldi. Frivolity? Frivolity. Frivolity. Steve, either at the individual level or team-wise, who in Major League Baseball has really surprised you in a positive way this year? Um, so I, I would say I am I am positively surprised by two things. One, I am floored by the performance of the San Francisco Giants. Um, yeah. Okay. To what do you attribute this really surprising success? I just think a lot of people are, are really having excellent year. I think their pitching has been much better than I certainly expected. I think they are... You know, they've had some really clutch hitting. Um, you know, I mean, the their Pythagorean's not that great. Like the, you know, the Dodgers have better sort of overall numbers, but you know, their their numbers are pretty much even with the Padres, and the Padres are a good team. So I I, I was not expecting that to be quite so much of a three team race in the West. But you know, the Giants have the best record in the National League through sixty five games. That's pretty it's just cool. amazing, and it really, as you say, it seems to be the product of real sort of general diffused widespread good performance throughout the team uh, it's very hard to say this is star driven because i mean be hard pressed to say who you're going to credit with that yep. kevin gausman's obviously you know killing it but uh although he lost that, although he lost on saturday so, so even he's not immune is it's the beginning oh. of the turn you've cursed him it's like the sports illustrated cover jinx it's the national security law podcast compliment jinx so I mean, the other thing I was going to say is, and I am surprised. This is closer to home. I am surprised, given how decimated they have been by injuries, that the Mets have not completely collapsed, which is very un-Mets-like. I I mean, it. First of all, even though I expected him to be awesome, Jacob Degrom has no, been no, no, no. So much better even than awesome. Awesome, awesome. So here's so there are so many Degrom stats that 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 we could seize upon. I wanted to sort of flag three. Um, so the first is through 10 starts, he's driven in more runs than he's allowed <laughs> earned runs. Has that, I mean, is there anyone above a certain innings pitch threshold no. who's, that's no. never been true before? Never. No. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess Babe Ruth, right, may have, uh, it might have been a year where, where Ruth had had that. I have, I'll have to go back on but no. Uh, actually, in like, I'm sure somebody like, well, Shohei Itani. Uh, okay, fair. But like, let's, let's talk about people who are not actually hitters by day. Uh, that's a good. Actually, that's a good question. How many? Run- okay. Anyway, you're right. Otani is a good a good example. All right. Um. So that's one stat. Um. Stat number two is he is simultaneously leading the majors in strikeouts per nine innings and fewest pitches per inning. How? So just the you know when I think fewest pitches per inning, I think like control pitchers. I think Greg Maddox. I think you know. People who just pitch to contact and get everybody out, right? Like Maddox, the the Maddox is a complete game shutout with fewer than ninety pitches, right? right. Um, <laughs> for someone to have the fewest pitches per inning and the most strikeouts, per, I mean that's insane. No, um, no. But here's the stat. Here's here's the stat to rule them all. Are you familiar with the advanced metric stat of of adjusted ERA? Uh, is this uh, adjusting for field qualities? No. So this is adjusting for the league average. Right, so okay, so, so like if you've been playing a bunch of sh- schlubs, then this kind of 
reduces, it kind of inflates your GPA or your GPA. Yep. Your, yeah. Sorry, that might say so it's, your it, it's ERA. ERA. It's ERA normed to the league. And, right. and even why, tough, yeah, I got it. Right. And the reason why that matters is because, yes, Bob Gibson has the modern ERA record with 1.12 in 1968, but like the overall league ERA was like two point something. Right. Um, so among modern pitchers, the greatest single season for adjusted ERA was Pedro in 2000. When his adjusted ERA was 291, and the way it works is, you know, 100 is the average. So 291 means you were almost three times as good as the average. That's amazing. Right? amazing. That is the all-time modern single season record. 291. Um, through 10 starts, Jacob Degrom's adjusted ERA is 688. God heaven. 688. Wow, that's awesome. I mean. Like, you know, I just, I, so, you know, I watch, I, like, his starts are now must-watch viewing. Like, I, like, clear my oh, yeah. calendar to watch him pitch. Yeah, you're watching and, like, and it's just, like, he just, you know, he sets the side down one, two, three, and you're like, yep, ho-hum. Like, it's a, <laughs> it's a news story when he gives up a hit. Yeah, seriously. Or, okay, so who's the batting equivalent? Is it Vlad Jr., as I believe yes. preseason you, you anticipated? I, so, so I, I do think that we are heading for the, the junior, the, 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 the junior, junior MVP, where it's Vlad Jr. in the AL and either Tatis or if, I mean, if DeGrom keeps this up, he's the MVP. Yeah, yeah, he should be. But, but, but on the notion that he will have at least some reversion to the mean and or not be able to stay fully healthy, you know, I think it's Tatis. And so we're going to have, you know, the the juniors, right? The the Suns, the year of the Suns. Right? But speaking of which, I'll give you full credit for you anticipated that Toronto was going to kill it with the trio of, yeah. they're not all juniors, but they're next generation. Yes. And, and Boba Shedd and Vlad Guerrero Jr. have both been amazing. And, and Biggio's coming along. Um, and, and, but, I mean, it's worth, it's worth, my, like, people are like, well, but the Blue Jays are only in third place. The Blue Jays are in third place not having played a home game all year, right? I mean, like, the Buffalo play, Blue Jays you're talking about? Right. I mean, they are, they are 20 and 17 on the road and 13 and 13 in the combination of Florida and Buffalo. Like, I mean, that isn't, that is a team that if it, if it finds any pitching in the second half is going to be really fun to watch. Yeah. No, that's really fun. Okay. Most disappointing. Who's really just frustrating you? The Mets. <laughs> can you can you have it both ways? I guess. Um, so um, I am. I well. So I mean, there's so a particular individual there who who many people would say like, I'll tell you who I'm blaming for being. No, no. Team. I think Lindor. I I I have no problem with Lindor. I think Lindor has been a huge asset to the team. He's playing Gold Glove defense. He's starting to hit. I think he's a great presence in the clubhouse. I, my problem is not with Lindor. Um, so you, you asked. I, I actually think disappointing and who am I unhappy with are two different questions. I am very happy that the Yankees are underperforming, right? Like that's 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 fine by me. Joy to you. Yes, I have I have no problem with the Yankees as a 500 team. That is excellent. Um, so I, I also have no problem with the Nationals underperforming. Like that's I you know, but my my friends who are Nats fans who spent all of April crowing about how the Nationals are going to be good again. You know, I hope that rotates good. Um, yeah, I don't know who who's on your list of 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 epic fails. Uh, let's see at the team level, Atlanta is not epic fail, but Atlanta is very Atlanta and Washington underperformed. Yeah. yeah. Atlanta's definitely been underperforming and I can't, because with all the injuries the Mets have, the Braves on paper, at least should be, you know, running away with the NL East uh, at the individual level. Uh, you know, uh, Blake Snell pitching Man. for the Padres, I thought was going to be yeah. a rock. He, he's been very, uh, underwhelming. 
Yeah. Uh, there, there are a handful of pitch. You can always find somebody who's probably nursing an injury and trying to pitch through it. Um, I, I've been going back to the positive side. You know, I remain. I'm not a huge Astros fan, but I like them, notwithstanding what what happened. Uh, I did think it was rich when the Red Sox fans with Alex Cora as manager were chanting, uh, you know, hostile <laughs> things at the Astros, especially. Like I'm increasingly thinking that Jose Altuve has been grossly victimized in some of the anti-Astros backlash because it's in, from what I'm learning about this, it sounds like Altuve was not in this the way that some of the other guys were. Well, so I actually I just finished reading Andy Martino's new book. So Andy Martino has a new book called Cheated: The Inside Story of the Astros Scandal. Oh well, um, talk about teeing it up for you. So tell me, like, where is Altuve on the spectrum relative to his teammates? So it's clear that Altuve was at the at most a latecomer to the 2017 sign stealing. Okay. What, what Martino documents, I think, quite persuasively in the book, is that um, what is much less clear. So the 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 bang on the the bang on the trash can scandal, right? Altuve seems yeah. mostly in the clear for that one. Yeah. Um, there is still a heck of a lot of circumstantial evidence implicating Altuve in the electronic. Um, signaling uh, uh, a scandal, um, including the you know the, the whole thing where he refused to let his teammates off, yeah. rip his shirt off after the the walk off homer against Aroldis Chapman. Yeah, right. Um, and Martino does not he does not come down on the notion that that Altuve cheated. He does suggest that like you know one a lot of Astros lost the benefit of the doubt from you know because of how much they lied about the 2017 stuff. But two, you know. The, the circumstantial evidence is is more than nothing. Like, this is not just a conspiracy theory. There's, you know, there's reason to be skeptical of at least some of it, even though baseball sort of didn't pursue that as aggressively as perhaps it could have. Interesting. Well, it remains to be seen what will come from it. Like, we can all agree that the Red Sox fans should, <laughs> need to keep their mouth shut as long as uh, Corey's <laughs> so, the manager. Fenway Park may be a glass house for these purposes. There you go. There you go. Indeed, uh, a glass house would facilitate sign stealing. <laughs> <laughs> that is clearly a sign that we should say goodbye. Indeed, we, sh- we should steal our own signs and sign off. So um, <laughs> we'll have more to say. Oh, we, we have to. You, you did not get to your your breakdown of Raya and the magic dra- and the dra- and the oh, and the dra- lost dragons. So we'll, we'll save up for next time. Give them to save. Um, give our listeners a chance to go get on their Disney Plus and, and seriously watch. fun. Um, watch. Until then, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, it's like 146 degrees here in Austin. So all I can say is instead of stay safe, stay cool out there. <laughs> Adios.